There's a battle over abortion underway in Ohio with an attempt to amend the state's constitution via a ballot initiative in next week's election. Governor Mike DeWine is here to tell us what's at stake. Synod participant and former head of the Vatican's doctrinal office, Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, reacts to the Synod's summary document and what's to come. And member of the papal posse, Robert Royal, is back from Rome. He'll share his experience covering the Synod. The world over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me an X post. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's get right to it. Election day is less than a week away, and Ohioans will take up the issue of abortion on their state ballot. If Ohio voters pass issue one on November 7th, abortion would become legal up to birth and parental notification rights regarding abortion and even sex reassignment surgery could be severely curtailed. Here to tell us about the issues involved at the polls next week is the governor of Ohio, Governor Mike DeWine. Governor, thank you so much for being here. I, I, I want to dive into this issue because the, really what this would do is codify abortion access in the state. Uh, give people a sense of how profound this ballot initiative is. You're absolutely right. Uh, this is a radical uh Amendment. First of all, it would go in the Ohio Constitution, so it would become a constitutional right. Uh, very difficult to change the Ohio Constitution, and certainly anything that the legislature did uh, by legislation would not have really any any impact on it. Uh, you're absolutely right. It would say that an abortion could occur in the state of Ohio at any time, uh, right up to birth. Uh, we have had on our books for many years a ban on a partial birth abortion. Uh, in fact, right. this technique was was started uh, and perfected by a Dayton, Ohio doctor. Um, we banned that, of course, uh, and that would overrule that. It would also overrule uh, our parental notification law in Ohio, which requires parents to be involved if a minor is going to have an abortion. So, uh, kind of the way I've explained it, even people who are pro-choice, uh, you know, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life, this just should go much, much, much too far. Um, my wife and I, Fran and I, actually have done an ad. Uh, it's the first time we've ever done an ad for a state issue, for it or against it, and we did an ad against it because we find this so just so radical. Uh, Governor, I was going to ask you, uh, why did you and your wife feel uh, that you had to do an ad? I mean, this is the first time you've done it. And to spend that much political capital, why do that now? And I'm looking at the polling here. Fifty eight percent of Ohioans would likely vote in favor of this issue one, which is a it's a constitutional amendment. It is a constitutional amendment. We felt this you know, very, very strongly about this, that it was not right for Ohio. Uh, it was not right, period. 
Um, and we wanted to express that directly to the people of the state of Ohio. And so we, we, we filmed an ad, we did an ad, uh, that ad is running right now uh, in, in Ohio. Uh, the poll that you're referencing, um, you know, certainly that poll was published. Uh, we think the race mm -hmm. is a lot closer than that. Uh, we did a poll about 10 days ago. Uh, we are closing the gap. And the uh, other side is not able to get over 50%. So we're in a real horse race right now. And, you know, we have been outspent uh, about three to one. And the other side has spent mm -hmm. over $30 million. We've only been able to raise about $10 million. We're still actually raising money, uh, you know, trying to raise money right today to make sure that we can keep our message up and that we can compete um, against the you know, the people that want to enshrine this in the Ohio Constitution. One of the interesting yeah. things you Go might find of interest is a lot of the money uh, to put the ads on in favor of this is coming from outside uh, the state mm. of Ohio. Yeah, no, it's a battleground. And, and I think uh, those on the pro-choice side are certainly trying to use this as an emblem of what's possible because this uh, pro-life fight essentially has returned to the states. Now, Governor, uh, what a lot of people don't realize, about a year ago, your voters uh, rejected a ballot initiative that would have required 60 percent of votes to pass uh, a constitutional amendment like this. But uh, my question is this. So basically, all you need is 50 percent, you know, plus one. Uh, what would how would this limit voters ability to revisit this issue? Should this particular issue one, a constitutional amendment, not legislation, a constitutional amendment pass? Well, Raymond, uh, in the history of the state of Ohio, uh, if you look at the ballot issues, uh, that have been instituted by by this procedure, we've had none that have ever been changed. Uh, so, you know, the likelihood that this would ever be changed, it, it, it could be changed, but it would take a, a you know, a, a vote of the people of the state of Ohio to do it. The legislature could not do it. The governor could not do it. Uh, we would have to go back and, you know, take this out of the Constitution. So it's possible but it's not something that is normally normally done. And so it just engraves this into the Constitution. It really takes us way, way back. Uh, you know, the laws that we were operating on before Roe v. Wade was overturned uh, were modified somewhat by the Casey decision. And the Casey decision right. said that states could put some guardrails in. Um, these, these guardrails would just be blown apart uh, by this constitutional amendment. So it's just as radical in every way, shape, or form, every way you can describe it. Uh, it would make yeah. Ohio just one of the most liberal, open states in the union on the par with, say, a state like California. Uh, Governor, uh, the way that this issue one is written, the language employed there, talk to us for a moment about the leeway it gives physicians to regard viability and how long could one procure an abortion in Ohio were this issue one to pass? Well, you know, this this was written by some very smart lawyers. Uh, these are people who are very smart. They're very good at what they do. And they pick their words very carefully. For example, they said uh, this is a right for an individual. They didn't say the right for a woman. 
woman would have uh, denoted that it was a, an adult. Uh, so, you know, they said for an individual, which means it is a right for a minor as well, uh, which is one of the reasons why we believe clearly that uh, it would overturn our parental notification. Uh, it goes into great, great detail and, and talks about that the state shall not um, in, in any way really inhibit, um, interfere with is one of the words that is used, uh, the right to an abortion. And so when you and cannot do that either directly or indirectly. So it's very, very wide, uh, very, very specific words in the sense that makes it very, very mm -hmm. open. Uh, and that's why the constitutional scholars, uh, we had three constitutional scholars uh, a day or so ago who gave a, uh, did a news conference and they went through in detail why they think that this is so expansive, that the words that are written here are so very, very expansive. Uh, Governor DeWine, you signed in 2019, I believe, a heartbeat bill that restricted abortion to six weeks. Now you're saying that there should have been uh, qualifications for rape and incest in that law. Some of your critics, including on the pro-life side, say Governor DeWine's flip-flopping. What would you say to them? Well, what I would say is this. Um, I'm for doing whatever it takes to save the most lives that we can save. Uh, I have a long career going back to my time in the United States Senate, the U.S. House of Representatives, 100 uh, percent pro-life voting record. Uh, but it became abundantly clear after the Roe v. Wade was overturned, uh, very, very clear uh, that 80 to 90 percent of Ohioans, uh, even if they were pro-life, believe that there should be an exception for rape and incest. So uh, hmm. I'm, I think we need to go, go back. Uh, if we can defeat this, then we'll have the ability to shape something that the majority of Ohioans can at least feel comfortable about and that we can make permanent uh, and have some stability in regard to that. If, on the other hand, this is passed, this uh, radical amendment, then I'm afraid that the debate has ended. So one yeah. way the debate continues and we can fine tune these things and and do the best we can do. But the other way, this thing is is basically over with and we're stuck with a mm. very, very open, very, very liberal uh, amendment in our Constitution. Governor DeWine, speak for me in our remaining moments about what this issue won, this ballot initiative, how it would target parental rights, parental ability to oversee their child wanting to procure an abortion or uh, gender reassignment surgery, which this issue one apparently touches upon. Well, let's get let, let's go back to to the basics. And the basics are that this was written uh, by the same people that have written the laws and trying in other states to be very, very open. Mm -hmm. They know exactly what they were doing. They're very smart lawyers. Uh, if they would have wanted to include, um, uh, exclude minors from this, they would have said so. They would have said woman. Uh, they instead used the, used the term individual. And so they were very, very specific. And if you read all the language, this is a right that will now go to this individual and including a minor and any kind of anything that gets in the way of that person uh, exercising their 
quote, right to an abortion, which is what it would become uh, based on the Constitution, uh, that will fall away and it will not be valid. So it's it's just as very, very liberal, open uh, uh, abortion at any point uh, during the pregnancy with no parental notification. That's exactly what we're going to end up with. And it's very mindful. Uh, they, they knew exactly what they were doing when they wrote it. Governor DeWine, uh, tell me what's motivating you on a personal level. And our audience should know you're the father of eight. You're the grandfather of 27 grandchildren. Is that part of what has drawn you so dramatically into this particular debate? Well, I th- you know, I think that, uh, you know, seeing children born, uh, seeing young babies, um, you know, but this this is something that I feel and my wife feels very, very strongly about. Uh, you know, we have an obligation, I believe, to protect human life. And, you know, that is something that, you know, it drives me. Frankly, it drove me through the pandemic uh, when we were doing things, everything in our power to try to protect elderly, try to protect people mm-hmm. who had medical uh, problems uh, from from death of COVID. Um, so it's, you know, it's cons- I think I'm con- consistent in regard to this. Um, let's protect human life. We have an obligation uh, to protect the most vulnerable among us. And certainly uh, that includes those who are who are not yet born yet. Governor Mike DeWine, thank you for bringing us up to date on this um, issue one, the ballot initiative, a constitutional amendment that could forever change the Constitution of the state of Ohio. We will continue to monitor it. Governor DeWine, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Raymond. November has arrived and I have some amazing news. And really, I have to thank you all. My new Christmas Merry and Bright CD has landed on the Billboard Jazz and holiday charts. It remains at the top, the best-selling jazz CD on Amazon, all due to you, and I thank you. You can get your copy at the EWTN catalog, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Music, Spotify, wherever you get your music, download it, buy it, get it, the hard copy, have at it. I can't wait to share this wonderful music with you and your families as well on the concert tour. We're kicking off Saturday, November 25th, that's Thanksgiving weekend in Phoenix, Arizona. Then Sunday, December 3rd, I'm at the House of Blues in Dallas. Friday, December 8th, the Straz Center in Tampa. Friday, December 15th in Cleveland in the grand finale. Thursday, December 21st at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. Jose Feliciano will be with me in Dallas and Nashville. Frankie Avalon joins me in Cleveland. And boy, do I have some incredible surprise guests for you. Go to RaymondArroyoChristmas.com for links to tickets. And please tell your family and friends, come out to see us. It's going to be incredible. It will make your Christmas, I think, merry and bright. The Synod on Synodality for 2023 wrapped up in Rome last week with the release of a so-called synthesis document, a summary of the proceedings. Here, with his analysis of the document and more, is a synod father, a voting participant, former head of the Vatican's doctrinal office, Cardinal Gerhard Mueller. Your eminence, thank you for being here. Um, I want to begin with the fact that this was not your first synod of bishops, but it is the first with vast participation by the laity. Now, Cardinal Robert McElroy of uh, uh, San Diego says there should be no future synod without laymen with voting rights. 
your thoughts on how this worked and the idea of that going forward. Yeah, we must uh, make our argumentations of uh, understanding of what is a church. And the Synod of the Bishops was in, was institution of the Second Vatican Council for expression of the collegiality of the bishops together with the Pope. And if you want to have an assembly for pastoral questions, theological questions, etc., uh, we can make um, a collection of uh, some professors, bishops, lay people, and so but uh, that is not the nature of the synod in the Catholic sense. In the other churches, we have another, which have another, or communities, they have another different understanding of the essence of the church, of the sacramental essence, and of the importance of the bishops and the pope as the successors of St. Peter. We cannot uh, change or we cannot. Uh, um, Disturb the, and, and the different, not to see the difference uh, between a synod, a synod of the bishops or an assembly of uh, some experts about a certain subject. And therefore, mm -hmm. uh, I cannot accept what was said. Uh, because it is a, it's not a deeper understanding of what is the nature of a synod in a Catholic sense. Your Eminence, with that participation of so many lay people, so-called lay experts, I want to get your impression of the way these discussions were conducted at the Synod. The organizers kept talking about the lived experience of the Synod. I want you to describe your, to describe your lived experience. How free were you to speak, and how often did you speak during the Synod? I personally could speak only once for three minutes because uh, there are 400 participants and if everybody has a chance to speak once, notice there's no more time to speak more than three minutes in the plenary, but in the, in the, in the tables we were sitting uh, in. Uh, there were more occasions uh, to speak, and in the, the pauses, uh, we can speak with uh, some people. Uh, but mm -hmm. it's what not uh, expression of the collegiality of the bishops was their responsibility uh, for the church on the base of the sacrament of ordination. Uh, and therefore, for me, it changed the nature of the uh, synod of the bishops into an assembly of, of this uh, other type. There was a lot of talk about listening to the Holy Spirit at this synod. Tell me about the role of the lay experts mm -hmm. here. How were they featured during this synod, uh, purportedly of bishops? How were those laymen featured as speakers, and do you feel they somehow pushed out the voices of bishops? Yeah, the Holy Spirit is not in Deus ex machina. We cannot ask the Holy Spirit uh, to fill our lacks in uh, the theological uh, studies. Um, we have to speak here with our theological and uh, personal uh, authority and knowledge uh, and not uh, only say, uh, if I have a meaning, idea, this, uh, this idea is coming directly from the Holy, uh, from the Spirit. They didn't, uh, they avoided uh, so often to speak. Uh, 
uh, about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Son, and, and God the Father. Uh, not only uh, is spirituality in the sense of uh, Protestant congregationalism, where everybody or the Quakers, uh, everybody can speak and they are saying uh, this uh, is the voice of the Holy Spirit. I had the impression uh, that uh, some people, when they had the occasion to speak, they presented their own subjective ideas for the modernization of the church in their uh, private uh, understanding and not uh, in the deeper understanding what are the needs uh, and the challenges uh, for the mm -hmm. church of Jesus Christ, of the three young God in the world of today. In the world of today, we have the transhumanism, we have these uh, mm. terrible forms of terrorism uh, in, the, in the name of God, and, and we have to speak what is a, the true nature of God, what is his presence in this world in Jesus Christ. Your Eminence, what does all of this mean to church governance? I said at the start of this synod it was really about remaking the governance of the church. After sitting through this month-long exercise, what do you think the vision is here? What is the intention of the organizers vis-a-vis -vis governance of the church? I think behind this terminology is a certain form of naturalization of the church, not uh, understanding the supernatural character of the church, uh, the sacramental uh, essence, and not only an organization made by men, with some uh, religious, spiritual, and uh, social uh, goals uh, and uh, attitudes. And they are thinking the church, the Vatican, and so this is a, a place of power, and we have to participate in this uh, power. This is, a, I think, a worldly, secularized, secularized thinking about the church. Mm -hmm. What is a... Um, the government, uh, governance of the church has nothing to do with the political or sociological uh, governance or with these uh, international organizations who want to influence uh, the world, the politicians in this sense, and for, for working for his own uh, prestige. Um, but the government, governance of the church is nothing other than uh, to be the good pastors of the church. I think this is the premises of these uh, challenges and these uh, wishes uh, to take part in the power in the church. The premises are wrong because there is behind a secularized understanding of the church and their mission is not to um, make power or to make decisions or to participate or to speak about uh, mm -hmm. uh, the others, but to serve to the people of God. Your, Your Eminence, curiously, uh, the LGBT issues and women's ordination, married priesthood, that received little to no mention in the final document. How does what you heard during these synodal discussions match up with that final summary? And does their absence mean that those issues are off the table? Yeah, in the synodal discussion was often mentioned and promoted these uh, efforts, these uh, 
thinking about LGBT on the openness uh, to to be open uh, um, for everybody, 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 tutti, 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 um, without speaking about conversion, only conversation in the Holy Spirit, not but they didn't speak about the conversion in the Holy uh, Spirit. Mm. Uh, everybody can become part of the member of the church, of the body of Christ, but through the baptism and the faith, the, the creed, accepting also the new way of life uh, in the f fellowship of Jesus Christ. Um, but uh, at the end, this is true, Uh, this uh, points was not uh, so mentioned or underlined in the final uh, document because uh, the leaders of uh, the responsibles uh, for the synod they um, said of the, uh, from the beginning that it's a synod about the synodality and not for the promoting of these uh, pressure groups uh, who want to um, change uh, the mm. church doctrine according uh, to their subjective wishes and uh, meanings, which are uh, mm. in itself uh, contrary to the revealed um, faith and the mm. uh, dogmatic uh, doctrine of the church. Yet, Your Eminence, you said that you believe coming out of this that we're being prepared, and I'll quote you, prepared to accept new understandings of homosexuality and the role of women in the church. How do you mean that? I think um, the Catholic Church is, is the only uh, international, um, uh, yeah, not organization, but uh, a community of, of believers in the name of God who are on the side of everybody, helping, seeing in everybody the image uh, of God. And therefore, Jesus gave his life for everybody, but he gave also to us the grace of the conversion, and everybody must, uh, must convert himself and go in the way according to the commandments of God, um, and all uh, the teaching of uh, Jesus Christ, because it is not a philosophical doctrine, but it is a mm. way of a good life. Jesus is in himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, and therefore, um, the doctrine about uh, the matrimony, the sacramentality of matrimony, Uh, cannot be changed. We cannot be as uh, responsible in the Catholic Church to be so naive and so superficial not uh, to understand what is behind this uh, so-called uh, LGBT movements or Vogue ideology uh, and all these uh, ideologies uh, in the 19th and 20th century, which uh, are the expression of uh, materialistic and nihilistic uh, understanding, vision uh, of, of the world and of the, of the being. Your Eminence, uh, Bishop Franz Josef Overbeck um, of Essen, he's a member of the infamous mm -hmm. German Synodal Way, 
Uh, mm-hmm. He had this to say at the Senate, and I want your thoughts on what you think he meant here. He said, we always place Christ at the center of our faith, but we set aside tradition and habits. What is important is the hierarchy of truths. Um, your eminence, what does he mean there? He was asked flat out by Diane Montagna, the journalist, if this was an effort to put aside apostolic tradition. He twice answered in the affirmative. Your thoughts? I spoke with him. I explained him what is uh, meant in the um, decree about the ecumenism. They have spoken about the hierarchy of the truth, but has nothing to do with uh, the distinction in between uh, truths of the first and the second class, but is spoken about the center of our uh, Christian belief is the triune God, the incarnation, the effusion of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the grace of God in the sacramental life of uh, the church. And therefore, all the truths and the articles of our uh, creed are uh, the expression of the self-revelation of God. And we cannot uh, reduce Mm. Christianism only to the ethics or the humanistic uh, religion, as it was in Immanuel Kant, and they, uh, Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and and the life, and we have to respect all uh, the doctrine of Jesus Christ present mm. in the doctrine of the apostles and in the uh, belief of the uh, Catholic uh, Church, and therefore uh, we can say. Uh, the baptism is a fundamental uh, sacrament, sacrament, but we cannot say, therefore, the Eucharist is less important uh, than um, the baptism um, because all these seven sacraments, ha- sacraments have their um, proper uh, meaning in the wider context of the Christian Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, theological figure, the hi- hierarchy of the truths, for re- relativizing the uh, truths and, and the article of the of our faith, uh, which are not so um, uh, modern in their sense, which are against their uh, ideology, and I think. Um, if you are if you are reading the Second Vatican Council, that is not the true uh, interpretation. We have the connex, the, the inner uh, connection between all uh, the truths, and the center of it is surely is uh, the is Jesus Christ, the Word of God, in whom in he, in Him is all grace and all truth. Finally, Your Eminence, the Pope just released a new motto proprio on Catholic theology, where he calls for a paradigm shift. In the document, he writes that Catholic theology must experience a, quote, courageous cultural revolution, fundamentally contextual theology. Basically, he's calling for a synodal approach to theology that prioritizes, and I quote, the knowledge of people's mm. common sense. Your reaction to this? I think there are a lot of slogans and commonplaces all the time. The Catholic theology from the beginning uh, 
uh, is in contact with uh, the culture and we don't need a paradigm shift because uh, the only paradigm shift is made in the coming of Jesus Christ in his uh, incarnation. And I think the, the agnosticism of today, the so-called uh, modern world of the journalists and so and, and of the international um, organizations uh, which are uh, dominated by atheists, by, by mere atheism, they cannot uh, mm. teach us what is the understanding of our faith and they cannot shape a good future. We see, we see, can see it in the world of today. Is this chaos? Is a decadence? Uh, to watch, mm. we are led uh, by an atheistic and materialistic and nihilistic thinking. And therefore, mm. we must uh, better is to, to read and study the word of God, the apostolic tradition. Your eminence, Gerhard Cardinal Mueller, we will leave it there. Thank you for your time, and we will check in with you in the days ahead. And I'm glad you survived the synod, your eminence. Thank you much. Here now with his take on the Synod on Synodality 2023 is one half of the papal posse, the esteemed editor-in-chief of the CatholicThing.org, Robert Royal. Bob, thanks for being with us again. Uh, first off, your reaction to what you just heard from Gerhard Cardinal Mueller. Anything that stood out? Well, one of the things I like about him in particular is the way that he points out that a lot of what the discussion was, he didn't go into a lot of detail about that, but it's very superficial, and it's kind of designed to be that way, that uh, if you start to dig into any serious issues, then you have to make substantive decisions. And instead, I think what largely happened, if there is a positive outcome from this session of the Synod, is that a lot of people got to know one another. They learned that people had different positions. But it was it did not dig deeply into Catholicism. It did not provide us with a kind of a launching pad. If, if, if the goal is in this synod to make the church more effective evangelically, uh, going out into the world and to, to make the way that the church is governed internally more efficient and closer to the spirit of Christ, I don't think that there was a lot of that. I think that most of the people that I spoke to, I know I felt exhausted by the end. And several of the people that I, I, I spoke with, including several bishops, felt basically the same. There were people, I think, who just had never been in something like this before and were energized by it. But my general take um, is kind of what the, the cardinal said, that we pretty much know the contours of Catholicism after all this time. And the attempt to use this synod to change it in some way um, still seems to me to be very much up in the air. Well, Bob, look— the upshot, I think, was clearly articulated this week by two U.S. cardinals. They returned from the synod and they started advocating for lay participation in all future synods. Uh, Cardinal Robert McElroy said, we'll put it on the screen, it would seem impossible to go back now, he says. It would be wrenching to go back if you just had bishops there or just bishops voting, end quote. Then Cardinal Blaise Supich of Chicago added, we all have authority, and that means 
we all have something to say, end quote. <laughs> Your take on what's happening here, Bob, it sounds like they're lobbying hard to enshrine this as a new dogma, this synodal lay participation approach at a time when they're trying to shake loose belief in most dogmas. But go ahead. Your thoughts. Yeah. Look, they keep denying over and over again that this is an attempt to democratize the church. But it's clear that that's, that's the direction that it's headed in. And if you want to mm-hmm. set up a body some sort of consultative body, which they did try to do. It it was rejected in the the final votes or somehow in the transition to the final document. But there was an attempt to kind of suggest that there should be kind of a permanent synod in you know, in, in, in play and, and active. That was not voted on and not approved in, in the final document. But look, if you, if you mm-hmm. want to have consultations with other people that include bishops, that's fine. But as the cardinal mentioned over and over again, The apostolic tradition is that people who have been specially trained, um, ordained, and then appointed to govern the the church, these are the bishops in in communion with the Holy Father are apostolically the people who have been designated in our entire tradition by how to conduct the business of the church. They can accept um, advice. They can consult with other people. It's, there's nothing wrong with people getting, at, uh, uh, getting together to discuss things. But the idea that somehow this has changed the entire history of the Catholic Church, well, these are two <laughs> American cardinals who have their opinions. But I, I don't think yeah. that, that their opinions necessarily have to become uh, the rule for the universal church mm. in the world. Bob, you were in Rome for the entire synod. What do you make of that synodal hangover uh, being felt by progressives in the wake of what they're calling a disappointing summary document? Because it failed to explicitly mention LGBT issues and women's ordination and uh, uh, end of priestly celibacy, etc. Well, uh, look, I wouldn't jump to too many conclusions. Yes, there were a lot of people. uh, Sister Janine Gramick of New Ways Ministries said she was disappointed because it essentially left the hierarchy uh, in place to run the church. And people, I think, of that ilk, generally speaking, were were disappointed. I myself don't believe that all these issues have gone away. I I was glad that the term Mm -hmm. LGBT was removed from the uh, from the document. I've been saying that, you know, when you use a, 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 a what is essentially an ideological um, acronym, LGBT, it's like giving the other team the ball on your five yard line and then you're scrambling to, to, to line up for defense. You've already conceded that there's this entity which doesn't even exist consistently in itself. There are lots of lesbians who don't like what trans is doing to their, you know, their status as women. There, there are male homosexuals who don't like trans. This is a, a mirage. And so for that not to have appeared is good. But I think that it didn't appear because they knew there would be very strong opposition to including it in the final document. Whether it will come back next year, we don't know. Um, it's interesting that the, the, uh, the chapters on women, on, on deaconesses, etc., got the most negative votes. Out of, out of a group of about 350 mm. uh, delegates, there were over 60, even over 65 in a couple instances, of opposition to those, those paragraphs. So um, they're not there in the final document. The progressives didn't get what they want. But I also don't think that they're gone for good. And we may see them not even uh, only next October, but I think in the interim year that we have between now and next year, I think we're going to see those return in subtle and not so subtle ways. 
Hmm. Cardinal Supich was interviewed by America Magazine, and he was asked if he was surprised that there wasn't more of a specific uh, LGBT uh, reference in the document. He said there were some very compelling testimonies on the part of people about that in terms of their families. That was not fully reflected in the document. That doesn't mean we're not going to return to it next year. I think that's going to happen. I would say this, the discussions about the LGBTQ community, there was greater discussion about that than polygamy, and polygamy was named in the document. And it was not a universal problem. And an issue like the gay and lesbian community would be. That's the end quote from uh, Blaise Supish. What, what, what do you make of the Cardinal's rationale there? And very quickly, you, do you think it will return next year? It sounds like he's planning on having it on his dance card. Yeah, we think that the same group of people is going to be invited back. It may be supplemented. It looks like there's some noises coming out of the Vatican that they may, may add some other people. But look, I would say this. They, they talk a lot about experience. So they talk about the experience of LGBT, families with LGBT people and you know, how heart-wrenching it is that they're not entirely accepted by the church. I would put this in another direction, and I didn't see anything like this in the final document. What about the families in a country like ours here in the United States and also in Europe where LGBT ideologies are being imposed on children in schools and children who, th who think that they want to transition to a different gender they're being told not to tell their parents, and it's being hidden from parents. So there's another group of people, parents, who have a different set of experiences that were not invited to this synod. And I, I think if, if we want to be um, really, really honest and sincere about what's going on in society, if we're in a, a different epoch now, as the Pope seems to be, be uh, promoting, well, we need to look at those threats to Catholic families as well as the openness to others. Yeah, Bob, for all the talk of peripheries, it seems the, the mindset of this synod was really shaped in the West. Uh, an African bishop present at the synod told the National Catholic Register's Ed Penton this. We'll put it on the screen. Another contribution that Africa brought up within this synod was our view on the teaching of the church on the human person and human sexuality. In Africa, we understand marriage as a union between a man and a woman, and anything short of that is witchcraft. This is something we said very strongly. That was uh, Bishop Andrew Nikea Fayana of, um, of Cameroon. Bob, your thoughts. This bishop, like so many others, got no press coverage. We didn't hear from this bishop. Well, I mean, the secular press is, is going to avoid voices like that. They want to uh, magnify the voices that they like, obviously. Look, I heard very early on, even before the synod began, that African bishops had met in a, in, a, in a place that I won't specify because I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but a group of them had, had met and had agreed among themselves that this LGBT stuff couldn't possibly go forward. And one of the reasons that they put forward is not only the dogmatic and the, and the traditional reasons why we, we limit sexuality to uh, within marriage, they said that the evangelicals and the Muslims we're just waiting in Africa for the, the Catholic Church to become unfaithful on those issues, and then they could then make great strides forward among the African people because they would know that that first world sexuality was wrong. So even if we're talking about evangelizing in Africa, this would be a terrible misstep. 
at the final mass of this synod, the, the first part of it, the Pope said something that sounded to me like he was trying to let progressives down lightly, lower expectations, if you will. Here's what the Pope said. This is the final closing mass. We may have plenty of good ideas on how to reform the church, but let us remember to adore God and to love our brothers and sisters with his love. That is the great and perennial reform, end quote. Bob, like President Obama, who once said after eight years in office, you are the change you've been waiting for. What are you hearing here? Well, I thought that that was a very good statement. You know, it, it seems to me that if we, we make that the focus, then we're Catholic. And, and when we adore God and, and we love our neighbor, we do it in a specific way, though. We don't, use, we, we don't do it in the way that the world thinks that we should, when it thinks about God. We, it does, it, we don't look at God the way the world looks at it. We don't look at it the way certain Protestant groups I mean, I actually saw a Protestant group in which a, a female minister was talking about the God of pronouns. We have a specific <laughs> content that I think the cardinal was getting at, that um, there's been a revelation, and we begin not with our own ideas about God and our own ideas about what it means to love a, a neighbor, but we begin with what God has communicated to us and what we try to follow. So I think that that was a very good step. I don't know, you know whether it was directed to the progressives who felt disappointed or whether it was a bone thrown to people who are more traditional, but I'm glad that he said it. Bob, I want to get your take on a new motto proprio from Pope Francis this week. It's entitled to promote theology. The Pope is calling for a paradigm shift in Catholic theology, as I mentioned to Cardinal Mueller. He speaks about opening the church up to the world and to humanity, quote, with its problems, its wounds, its challenges, its potential theological reflection is therefore called to a courageous cultural revolution, which requires a fundamentally contextual theology. Now, Bob, how do we unpack this? Cultural revolution seems like a loaded term, coming as it does from the communist playbook. And what of a contextual theology? What does this mean? Well, it just came out today, and it's only in Italian. I read it this morning uh, kind of quickly, uh, knowing that we'd be, we'd be talking about it today. But, look, in, in some ways, the document is fine. It talks about engaging all the questions that exist at our moment. I mean, this is something that Thomas Aquinas did, that... Uh, uh, that uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger did in their day, th that part of it is nothing new. And, and, and the impression that the document kind of gives is that we haven't done this before in the church is simply false. We've always done this. What worries me about this contextual theology is it sounds a lot like situation ethics to me or situation theology mm. because, um, as I said earlier, everybody has experiences. People have, people have experiences of of problems with, with their children who may be LGBT. People have problems with their children are being being uh, catechized by LGBT. Experiences in and of themselves don't give us answers. What we need are, are principles and, and the connection with God's revelation, as, as I was talking about earlier. And it seems to me that this contextualization is a move away from that. It reminds me in a, in a kind of a general way of the old the, the liberation theology where there's this kind of uprising from below that is going to define theology. The Pope 
very often in his papers, he has kind of expressed disdain for real theology. In that document, he talks about he, he, we don't want a theology of the desk, you know, that this, this sort of academic theology. Right. But we need both of those things. You know, we, we need to be able to pay attention to what where we are culturally, what problems people are experiencing. But at the same time, we need that that um, I would say unique Catholic ability to combine faith and reason that we can we can probe into every question that there is with the, the reasonable powers God has given us and in the light of the faith. And insofar as we do that, we will be Catholic insofar as we accept the, the context as the primary thing that we should look to, I think we're starting to move away from where we ought to be. Hmm. Bob, there are new developments in that bombshell story of the diocesan reinstatement of disgraced artist and former Jesuit priest Marco Rupnik. He was credibly accused of the sexual abuse of nuns. Uh, As viewers recall, we reported that a Slovenian diocese had accepted him, reincarnated him as a priest in good standing. Recently, well, Rupnik's former Jesuit superior is denying that the order facilitated that reinstatement of Rupnik and that the Jesuits, he claims, warned the local bishop about him. The Pope, after a lot of media pressure, including from this program, lifted the statute of limitations on Rupnik and reopened a Vatican investigation of him. Bob, didn't they already do multiple investigations into this guy? What's happening here? I wish I knew, Raymond. Um, we have a column up at the Catholic thing today. You know, how is this still happening in the church? I mean, we, we know that um, people who are serial abusers, which is what Rupnik seems to be, are very good at manipulating authorities, m- manipulating the people that they've abused. The Jesuits started a process with him. The Holy Father didn't lift the statute of limitations. And one of the signs that, in, in my estimation, it, that there's credible guilt there is he wouldn't cooperate with the investigation. Priests I know who have mm-hmm. handled these sort of cases say that when a person is cooperative, it kind of gives you a certain confidence that they're, they're innocent. They, they, they want to get the truth out there. He wouldn't, he wouldn't cooperate. The Jesuits eventually threw him out because he was disobedient to, to his superiors. And suddenly he shows up in his home country and is accepted into one of their dioceses, and even the other bishops in Slovenia have kind of distanced themselves from this. So somebody was massaging this process. I think at this stage we don't know who it is. It's good that the Holy Father, admittedly under pressure, finally lifted the the statute of limitations. And I'm really waiting to see how it is that at this late stage in our understanding of abuse in the church, this man, Mm. who (laughs) some of the things are just utterly eye-popping what he, what he did and tried to do, how he no. was able to become a, a priest in good standing again. Well, yeah, and, 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 he's very, and we do know he has very deep Vatican contacts and is a friend of the Pope's. Now, Bob, the Pope also touched on this subject of abuse in a blockbuster interview on Italian TV. Uh, and, and I think it's appropriate to discuss this in conjunction with the Rupnik saga. A lot of cleaning was done, the Pope says here. They concerned all cases of abuse, and even some from the Curia were sent away. Pope Ratzinger was courageous in this. He took that problem into his own hands and took many steps and then handed it over to finish. This goes on. Abuse, whether of conscience, sexual abuse, or anything else, must not be tolerated. It is contrary to the gospel, 
That's the end of the quote there. It won't be tolerated, but it has been tolerated, Bob. As recently as last week, and in the case of the Pope personally, Archbishop Zanchetta and Barros, and I mean, I can keep going down the list, I won't, but why is there a, a capacity, if you will, an, an undue mercy for these kind of rabid abusers in the church? Yeah, look, his words were, were very good. His actions have been, let's say, they're, they're spotty, because you rightly say it, it isn't as if just one or two of people who were close to him were given special treatments. Zanchetta was actually removed from Argentina, and a special job was made for him inside one of the, the financial offices in the Vatican, which was just mind-boggling when he was under investigation. Right. So there's, I mean, we have, it's clear that this pope would like to clean up abuse. I, I, I don't doubt his sincerity about that. But when it comes to individuals, especially individuals, he knows, he, his, I think his emotionalism tends to take over and he doesn't want to believe it and then even allows things to happen institutionally um, that cast doubt on his own credibility as a person who really wants to clean things up. Hmm. Yeah, well, and he is right. Ratzinger was tenacious and courageous in this way. I mean, he removed like 3,000 priests yes. in the course of his tenure at the, at the CDF. Um, well, Bob, it's being reported that Pope Francis will travel to Dubai in December to personally address a U.N. climate change summit. Now, one's, one assumes he's going to be raising his carbon footprint by flying to Dubai from Rome, but I'll put that aside. Why is this an important issue for the church now? And how does this dovetail with that recent apostolic exhortation, got very little coverage, Laudato Deum, which was released a couple of months ago, the Pope's uh, most recent uh, uh, exhortation on the environment? Yeah, look, he's made this one of his, the, the centerpieces of his papacy. And there's nothing wrong with uh, having a concern for what he calls our common home. My concern about what he's been doing is that he seems to go to the most radical interpreters of environmentalism. Look, th these are hard questions, these hard, these hard trade-offs that have to take place when we deal with the environment. We obviously still need energy. We still need to be able to produce food. We can't just disrupt our electrical um, uh, grids to try to use uh, renewable power sources. Um, we, we, need, we need sober prudent people reflecting on those things. When his first encyclical, Laudato Si, came out, the panel that presented it was unbelievably um, uh, radical to the left. You, know, you had eco-feminists, you had a man who wanted to reduce the human population to one billion on, on the face of the earth. And this uh, Laudate um, Deum, the most recent document, has been widely criticized by people who know, who know uh, the details of of the environmental debate and say that it's just, it's, it's making a, 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 a case that also undermines its own credibility because it makes claims that, mm. that even the best analysts don't have. Look, he's going to go there. He's going to make some statement. It's a good thing for, for, to bring some people together to recognize God's creation and the need to care for it. I just wish he would be a little bit more careful in who he engages with and who he has write some of these documents for him. Hmm. Bob, I'm going to leave it here because I want to tie a bow around the synod. The Pope says that this synod was precisely what was envisioned by Paul VI. Is that your take on this? I mean, especially considering the way we heard from Cardinal Mueller. He got three minutes in a month to speak. 
one month, three minutes before the assembly. The stymieing of the expression of bishops for these kind of pre-programmed layman lectures, is that the vision of Paul VI for a bishop synod? Well, look, we've talked about this before, and, and some of the Eastern Catholic uh, uh, prelates have said quite openly that this is not uh, a synod in either the sense that, that the Eastern Church has understood it, and we were told we're recovering that tradition, nor is it what Paul VI envisioned. Paul VI envisioned a college of bishops coming together to help help him inform him, make some decisions about what needs to happen in the church. I myself have noticed that they are talking about the assembly a lot rather than, you know, emphasis on the word synod. And I kind of wish they would go in that direction. We, if we had some kind of consultative assembly, that wouldn't give the impression that the people who were there somehow by the fact of being baptized Catholics have a right to run the church. That's not how we understand things. Vatican II actually th had the notion that lay people should go out into the world and, and evangelize right. and, and in their workplaces, in, in their recreation, et cetera, bring the church there. Not lay people coming into the church to kind of do what the clerics are already doing. So I, I think that it's yeah. the opposite of the truth. Yeah. Bob, we will leave it there. Thank you, as always, for your commentary, your insights. And you can read more, hear more at thecatholicthing.org. Bob has all his commentary there. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, Raymond. And The Magnificent Mischief of Tad Lincoln, my new book, is available now in bookstores. It's a story of finding hope and joy in dark times. Uh, Tad Lincoln's Magnificent Mischief really saved his father in many ways. And it's a good reminder to parents, to all of us, about the power of a child, not only to create a national tradition, but in our families, in our lives. It's available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, the EWTN bookstore, wherever you get your books. Go to RaymondArroyo.com for more details. That's all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.